This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffland and Sonia Portillo. For this edition of the Oncogene Brief, we sat down with Dr. Angela de Michel, Professor of Medicine and Epidemiology at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us. I'm Peter Hovland, here with Sonia Portillo. Over the last 25 years, there has been an explosion of new and vitally important anti-cancer drugs. The development of these promising new therapeutics is generally based on preclinical and clinical research. However, The traditional clinical trial process of determining which drugs will ultimately benefit patients is long and expensive. While there are many novel anti-cancer drugs being developed to help improve the outcome and improve survival, resources are limited. Optimal use of resources requires better understanding of cancer biology, the identification of novel therapeutic targets, and the ability to address inefficiencies in the cancer clinical trial system. This may especially be so how we treat women with metastatic high-risk breast cancer. Among the targeted drugs being investigated in the iSpy2 trial are antibody drug conjugates, or ADCs. Antibody drug conjugates are part of a new wave of targeted antibody-based products. They are novel, innovative agents at the cutting edge of oncology and hematology. We asked Dr. Angela de Michel a number of questions about a specific part of the iSpy2 trial in which researchers investigated a particular antibody drug conjugate and how a combination of drugs, including antibody drug conjugates, can bring a substantially greater proportion of patients to the primary endpoint of pathological complete response, or PCR, an outcome in which, following neoadjuvant therapy, residual invasive cancer is detected in the breast tissue and lymph nodes during surgery. And we ask her about the benefit of targeted therapy and how novel drugs like antibody drug conjugates play a role. And welcome back. Just before the break, we were talking about the complexities of clinical trials and how to improve these. Dr. De Michel, welcome to the Angusin Brief. Over the last decades, we've seen major developments in the treatment of cancer. One of these developments includes antibody drug conjugates. What are the benefits of these new targeted agents and what is the role they play in the treatment of patients with cancer? I think this is really an exciting time for antibody drug conjugates because 
we have learned so much biologically about tumors and the immune system and the idea that we can target tumor cells both with antibodies that have specific and unique activities on extracellular receptors, but also use them as a drug delivery device for highly toxic chemotherapeutics that we couldn't have given systemically. But now we've got a way to actually use these very unique linker technologies to be able to home in on the tumor cells and deliver the drug that would have been too toxic to normal cells specifically to the target. That's a really um, exciting and potentially very powerful approach. And uh, TDM1 is just one example of this where we already had an antibody, trastuzumab, that we knew was active on its own against HER2-positive breast cancer, that we understood a lot about the biology of, uh, of the HER2 receptor, HER2 dimerization, um, and then all of a sudden now to have the technology to bind mtansine, which had been tested as a chemotherapeutic on its own and was much too toxic for people to, to be able to tolerate, now to be able to link that to this effective antibody and deliver it specifically to HER2 overexpressing breast cancer cells is really novel and revolutionary. And you get not only the delivery system for the chemotherapeutic, but you've got also the activity of the antibody itself. So you've got that one-two punch that really um, provides a very um, powerful way of targeting the tumors. And in this world of precision medicine where we're looking for things that are unique to tumors uh, that are not found on normal cells, this is a very powerful way of saying once we've identified these antigens on tumor surfaces and now we've got the ability to design antibodies to those, then being able to link additional payload to those antibodies really has tremendous potential that I think we've barely begun to tap into. So I think that this is a, a time where we are going to see more and more of these therapies developed, not only because they are so potent against the tumor cells, but because they spare normal cells. And in the world of solid tumor oncology, I think that over the last 20 years, you know, certainly we've made many strides of developing chemotherapeutics, cytotoxic agents that are effective against tumor cells, but we've seen that those off-target effects on normal cells like the bone marrow, like the heart, like the lungs, really can create uh, later problems for patients um, that can really be quite debilitating. So a woman who develops uh, cardiomyopathy uh, and congestive heart failure 10 years after her treatment with an anthracycline, uh, you know, just has a new problem now, even though she may have potentially been cured of her breast cancer. So being able to link an anthracycline to an antibody and be able to spare the heart really means we can take a drug we've already tested and know is effective against the tumor, but now what we're doing is really making sure that we, um, we get it right to where it needs to go and we don't have these collateral effects that really are so damaging to patients. And the same is true with other types of toxicities. Neurotoxicity, for example, which is a major problem in cancer therapeutics, particularly in breast cancer, where we use a lot of neurotoxic agents, um, neuropathy is debilitating for patients. They can't wear shoes, they can't 
uh, type, they can't cook, they can't do self-care, um, and these can be not just numbness or tingling, but actual pain syndromes. So then we are getting into the realm of using narcotics and other kind of pain modifying agents. So you could see that this really just begins to snowball and the patient is left very debilitated even if we've cured the cancer. So we've got to think both about how we can advance cancer um, effective cancer care, and at the same time, minimize and reduce the number of long-term complications we're giving to patients. We have many cancer survivors, that's a great thing, and that has really been the result of all of the advances in cytotoxic therapy over the last 20 years. The next 20 years has to be about continuing to improve that therapy, but sparing patients the side effects, the long-term complications that really impact their quality of life. If they're going to live another 30, 40 years, just as we hope they will after a cancer diagnosis, we want that to be a high quality 30 or 40 years. So the iSpy program began about 15 years ago, and initially this was an observational study of women who were receiving neoadjuvant treatment for their breast cancer. So the idea here is that when a woman is diagnosed, particularly with a large, aggressive, node-positive tumor, uh, we knew that we could give chemotherapy before surgery in an effort to try to shrink the tumor and make the surgery more effective. Because 20, 30 years ago, we thought of breast cancer as a surgical disease. And we thought that what we needed to do was eradicate all of the disease in the breast. And of course that's true, but why do women die of breast cancer? They die of breast cancer because of micrometastatic or dormant cells that leave that primary tumor and get into the periphery, get into the circulation, ultimately find their way to other sites. So metastatic breast cancer, breast cancer that's gone to the bones or to the organs, that's what's lethal. So the idea was that if we gave chemotherapy upfront, not only would we shrink the tumor, but we would also get this effective therapy into the rest of the body to try to start to attack these micrometastatic cells before they could take up residence in another organ or in the bones. Uh, and so when we first started to use this neoadjuvant approach, the approach was to use standard chemotherapy. And it turned out that if you gave the exact same chemotherapy regimen before surgery as after surgery, that the patient outcomes would be just the same. So essentially what that was telling us was the chemotherapy is going to be effective for some fraction of patients, and it didn't matter whether you gave it before or after surgery to see that effect. So what else can we learn? Well, what we can learn by giving the chemotherapy first and seeing its effect on the tumor is how sensitive the tumor actually is to the chemotherapy. And as time went on and more and more studies were using the neoadjuvant approach, we started to see very clear evidence from many studies showing that women who had achieved what we call a pathologic complete response, no tumor in the breast, no tumor in the lymph nodes at the completion of this therapy, did very, very well. They had a much better prognosis than women who had residual tumor in the breast and lymph nodes. So now all of a sudden we have a surrogate for a long-term outcome. 
that meant we could start to think about using this for drug development. Because if we have a short-term surrogate, pathologic complete response, that can tell us pretty reliably whether a patient's going to relapse later on, then we can start testing drugs against that surrogate. And if they're successful against the surrogate, then it stands to reason that they would be successful in terms of improving survival and reducing recurrence risks. Now, unfortunately, it's not that simple. Nothing is. Um, so one has to really understand the surrogate. And the early years of iSpy were really about understanding how much of a change in the tumor, how, what degree of response would correlate ultimately with an improvement in long-term outcomes. How good a surrogate was it? And ultimately what we found, along with many others at the time, but one of the principal things that iSpy found at the very, in the very early years was that the relationship between response in the tumor pathologic complete response, and ultimately relapsing from the tumor was very specific to the kind of cancer, the kind of breast cancer that a woman had. So if it was a triple negative breast cancer, lacked estrogen, progesterone, HER2 receptors, then there was a very tight correlation between getting a pathologic complete response in the breast and not relapsing later on. The flip side of this was if the tumor was um, estrogen receptor rich, full of these estrogen receptors, one might not see very much response in the tumor at the time of surgery, and yet those patients would still go on to do very well. Why would that be? Well, that's because of the advent of adjuvant endocrine therapy. So even if the tumors weren't very sensitive to the chemotherapy, patients were getting five and now 10 years of an antiestrogen after surgery that was helping them to avoid recurrence. So it was a very instructive time uh, in the early 2000s where many groups, iSpy, the German groups, many different groups were really trying to understand this relationship. And this all came together about four years ago when the FDA uh, actually did a meta-analysis, taking all of the studies that had looked at pathologic complete response, or PCR, as an endpoint, as a surrogate endpoint, and really looking at how good a surrogate it was. And they did that because they wanted, the FDA wanted, to be able to use this early surrogate to give provisional approval to drugs that looked very promising. And if we had to wait five or 10 years to see if patients were going to relapse, you could imagine that it would be very slow in terms of getting these drugs to patients. So having a reliable early surrogate is something the FDA would very much like to be able to use. So we were involved in those discussions and really trying to codify how you would use PCR as an intermediate endpoint for provisional or accelerated approval of drugs. And so now moving into the therapeutic aspect of iSpy, what we are doing is now adding drugs or substituting drugs for the existing drugs to see if we can improve those PCR rates. Can we get a greater proportion of women to the point of having a PCR at the time of surgery? Because if we can do that, it would stand to reason that we would save a greater proportion of women from having their breast cancer recur. After the break, we'll discuss how the trial helps guarantee a pathological complete response at the time of surgery.
I'm Peter Hovland here with Sonia Portillo and Dr. Angela de Michel on location at the annual meeting of the American Association of Cancer Research. And welcome back. Just before the break, you were about to make a point about how pathological complete response, or PCR, gives patients a real survival advantage. So we moved into the ICEBY2 trial in 2010, and it was specifically designed as a randomized phase two trial to help us find drugs that would significantly increase the PCR rate above what we would find in standard care with the idea that if we could increase the PCR rate with these drugs, that ultimately they would be beneficial for patients in terms of long-term outcomes. And so the trial is unusual in the sense that first, it's a standing platform trial. That means we set it up in 2010, and it's been running continuously ever since. And it's designed to enable drugs that are being evaluated to enter the trial, go through a period of testing, have us understand whether they work or not, and then they leave the trial. And so 11 different drugs have come in and out of the trial over that period of time, uh, and five of them have been found to be effective. And now that essentially tells us that these are drugs that we ought to then take forward into a confirmational phase three trial. So it's really a drug screening program, if you think of it that way, to take promising drugs test them in this very early setting before women become metastatic, which also brings up an important issue. Drug development in the past had been done primarily by testing drugs on patients who are at the end stages of disease, who had stage four heavily pretreated disease. And if a drug were active in those types of patients, then we would think about moving it earlier in the trage disease trajectory. The problem with that approach is that as we've learned now, the biology of the disease changes over time and the molecular and genetic characteristics of the tumor at the time it's diagnosed in the breast are very different from the tumor that now becomes metastatic in other parts of the body. So drugs that work in the metastatic setting might not work in an early disease setting. And more importantly, drugs that could work in the early disease setting and actually have the potential to cure patients might not work in the metastatic setting. So using the metastatic setting as a screen for active drugs really was not a very effective strategy, particularly as we start to get into more targeted therapies. So understanding the biology of the disease and the ad advent of these more targeted therapies, as well as then a clearer understanding of this PCR surrogate, all coalesce to enable us to really start this trial that had the goal of adding new drugs to the existing regimens. The iSPY2 trial program allows drugs to enter and leave the clinical trial program quickly and seamlessly allowing researchers to learn faster about better performing anti-cancer drugs and, depending on the tumor's molecular characteristics, treat patients more effectively with targeted drugs added to existing regimens. Prior studies have shown that a combination of drugs, including TDM1, also known as adotrastuzumab emtensine or Catsila, was safe and effective against advanced metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer. In the iSPY2 trial, the investigators tested whether this combination would also be effective if given earlier in the course of treatment, before surgery. 
How important is this? So one of the unique things about the ICE-BY-2 trial is that we can test multiple drugs simultaneously. We can test drugs that are specific to HER2 positive tumors, drugs that are specific to HER2 negative tumors. We can test the drugs within a whole variety of different breast cancer subsets and see where they work best. So in the HER2 space, there's a desire to really be able to bring a greater proportion of patients to this endpoint of pathologic complete response. We do pretty well with chemotherapy, usually a taxane-based regimen, and Herceptin. So it stood to reason that once the, um, the TDM1 uh, molecule came along, that that would be very appealing because it's targeting HER2, but also delivering a very potent microtubule disruptor similar to what we do with taxanes, but now delivering it right to the tumor. And so uh, the goal of this arm of the ICE-BY-2 trial was to test TDM1 in combination with another antibody, pertuzumab. And these two have very synergistic mechanisms. While the TDM1 is binding to the Herceptin binding site on the extracellular HER2 and absorbing the amtansine, pertuzumab is binding to an, a completely different site on the HER2 and it's blocking heterodimerization. So they're really working quite synergistically. Moreover, they have very different side effect profiles. So it was very easy to combine these drugs together. So what we did was we compared the combination of TDM1 and pertuzumab to the standard part of neoadjuvant therapy that would consist of paclitaxel, trastuzumab, and all of those patients went on to get the rest of the standard regimen, which was adriamycin and cytoxin, and then they went to surgery. And the goal was to see whether the TDM1 pertuzumab could increase the pathologic complete response rate over the standard paclitaxel trastuzumab. And in fact, what we found was that it did do that in a very significant way. Now, one thing I should tell you about the ICE-BY-2 trial is that it's an adaptively randomized trial. What does that mean? It means that we use Bayesian probability statistics to adjust the randomization probabilities for patients coming into the trial. So we are constantly using what we learn about patients who've been treated by the drugs in real time to then determine what drugs patients should get the next patients who are coming into the trial. So what happened was that over time, during the time that TDM1 pertuzumab was being evaluated in our trial, it um, was found to be superior to the other regimen. And we use a relatively unique uh, endpoint in addition to pathologic complete response. We say that the degree of improvement in pathologic complete response that we see with the TDM1 pertuzumab over standard paclitaxel trastuzumab uh, needs to be sufficiently large to predict that doing that large confirmational phase three trial, we would still see this effect. So this is built on probabilities, a lot of longitudinal modeling, and really a very sophisticated way of saying not just, well, what are the absolute numbers? What is the PCR rate of the new combination to the old combination, but in fact, is the new combination good enough that we would expect it to be uh, effective later in ultimately preventing patients from, being, uh, from developing metastatic disease? So we call that graduation in the trial. And essentially, it means that there's an at least 85% probability 
that tdm one pertuzumab would be successful in a subsequent phase three trial. So that's the very nature of the screening aspect of ISPY2, a phase two trial that identifies drugs to take forward into phase three. And if the combination does well enough, we know with high confidence that it will succeed in that confirmational phase three trial. Uh, and so we did find that it was superior and in fact increased um, the estimated pathologic complete response rates over the standard therapy by about 30 percentage points. And that it had anywhere from a 90 to 94% chance of being successful in a, a subsequent phase three trial. And this is the kind of thing that the FDA wants to see because this enables them to say, here's a drug that we ought to support in a phase three registration trial. So many drugs that go into randomized trials ultimately fail. So having the information that you have a high likelihood of success coming out of a relatively small number of patients, we had only 83 patients in our trial, uh, really is going to help direct uh, both investigators and the FDA to the most active drugs and to really put our limited resources of clinical trials into trials that are gonna be successful. And this is what happened with um, the drug pertuzumab. So pertuzumab was found also to really dramatically increase the pathologic complete response rate over standard paclitaxel and Herceptin. Pertuzumab, when added to those two drugs, actually had a very large impact, and that was a large enough impact that convinced the FDA to give accelerated approval to pertuzumab. Now, of course, the, the confirmatory phase three trial is ongoing, that's called the affinity trial, but it's a great example of the way that a neoadjuvant trial can give the FDA sufficient um, confidence in the benefits of a drug that they will give it accelerated approval, make it available to patients who need it right now while we're waiting for the confirmational trial. And so what we found in our in our trial is that TDM1 pertuzumab really has that capability and it is in fact being tested in several large randomized phase three trials. Um, but the other unintended benefit, I think, is the fact that we were able to give up the paclitaxel. And so now we have a fully targeted regimen, pertuzumab and TDM1, that does not have the um, side effects on normal cells that using paclitaxel would have. And so what we found in our trial is that the patients who got TDM1 and pertuzumab had much less of the type of bothersome side effects like hair loss and neuropathy that really matter to patients. Patients felt very good while they were on this treatment. They weren't losing their hair, their hands weren't getting numb, they were feeling good and they had very few other untoward side effects. And so what I think is really the bottom line here, the big news is that we found a drug combination that can both increase the likelihood of patients being cured of their disease and at the same time give them fewer short-term and long-term side effects than the standard therapy. And, and I think that is ultimately what we all want to be able to do for patients. It's not just improve their outcomes, but also make sure we're preserving their quality of life. It's not enough to simply cure them of the disease if they're left with debilitating long-term effects. And that is really the goal, is now to build on this. So TDM1 can now become the new backbone. And because it is so non-toxic as an antibody drug conjugate, 
we now can start to add other things to it in a way that we might not have with standard cytotoxic therapies where you had to worry about all of these conflicting side effects. And so we are really enthusiastic about taking this backbone of TDM1 forward and starting now to build, build the house on top of that. So we get to the point where every patient with HER2 positive disease will hit a PCR. Every patient can have that opportunity for long-term success. Forty-five years ago, cancer was almost invariably a death sentence. It was feared. It was something that was uh, felt to be the major threat in our time. We lacked the tools to be able to fight it. Over the impending 40 years, we then developed a whole set of tools and cytotoxic therapies that started to now make it possible for patients to survive cancer, and that was great. But the new technologies, particularly antibody drug conjugates, now make it possible to take those effective therapies and deliver them in a way that won't have the toxic side effects that patients have been left with. In addition, we've learned so much more about the biology of tumors that we now have a cornucopia of antigens against which we can develop antibodies, continue to advance the linking technology, to link it to new payloads. And I think that that is gonna provide us the opportunity to start to combine these antibody drug conjugates in ways that can really attack tumors in multiple directions, again, with very little long-term and short-term toxicity to patients. So I'm very enthusiastic about the direction things are going. Certainly we've made a lot of progress, um, but we've got a long way to go, both in terms of eradicating the disease, certainly now that we understand more about the biology, targeting it in a very precise way, being able to then look at an individual patient's tumor and understand what are the targets for that woman. Not just what targets are out there, what drugs could we try, but, but in that very personalized sense, what is her tumor uh, really all about and how can we pick from these very targeted therapies that group that's gonna eradicate that tumor. And that's where I see things going in the future, to really take this really powerful um, technology uh, and, and begin, begin to really apply it in a very personalized way to patients. The unique approach of the iSpy2 trial is that it uses adaptive randomization and a statistical approach called Bayesian probability of superiority versus control to assign patients to the standard therapeutic approach or the investigational drugs. The iSpy2 trial demonstrates that by replacing older, non-targeted therapies with more effective, less toxic, new and targeted therapies, such as an antibody drug conjugate, it is possible to both improve outcomes and to decrease side effects, creating a real survival advantage for women with breast cancer. We know that based on this interview, you may have questions. So please submit your questions to our editorial team via email, Facebook, or Twitter. 
we'll post as many answers as we can on our website on cuisine.com at oncozine.com. Thank you all. And thank you for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hovland here with Sonja Portillo. And this is the Oncuisine Brief. The Oncuisine Brief is produced for Sun Valley Communication by Peter Hoffland, Sonia Portillo, Evan Wint, David Kaler, and Sean Mayer, and distributed by PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and InPress Media Group. Support for the Oncuisine Brief comes from our listeners and commercial underwriters. For more information about underwriting options, contact Sean Mayer at 949 923 1660 or visit our website at oncozine.com forward slash underwriting. The Oncozine Brief contains health and medicine related information and is provided for educational and informational purposes only. The content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it.